Welcome to the April 2018 edition of the RehabCast. This is the podcast for all of rehabilitation medicine brought to you by the archives of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Now on the conference horizon is this year's Federal Interagency Conference on Traumatic Brain Injury. It's at the DC Hilton June 11th through 13th. The conference offerings are vast. There is truly something for everyone in the broad field of brain injury medicine, whether you treat military members and veterans or civilians. You can register at interagencyconferencetbi.org. Now there's a particularly apt way in which the Washington DC Hilton is the setting of a major national brain injury conference. Ronald Reagan was two months into his presidency when John Hinckley Jr. drew a $29 handgun outside the Washington Hilton Hotel on March 30, 1981. He wounded the president, Brady, a Secret Service agent, and a Washington police officer. Reagan and his guards fully recovered, but the 22 caliber bullet exploded into Brady's forehead and left him partially paralyzed. James Brady, Reagan's press secretary, became a powerful advocate for gun control alongside his wife, Sarah Brady, following his brain injury. In 1989, Jim testified before Congress for the first time since he was shot eight years earlier. Mr. Chairman and members of this subcommittee, thank you for inviting me to testify. Of course I am honored to be here. But it's not the honor that compelled me to appear before you today. It's the anger. Anger at a Congress that just a year ago failed to pass a measure which would reduce the handgun violence by plaguing our nation. I had no choice but to be here today because of too many members of Congress have been gutless on this issue. I think another member said that they've been afraid to take on the National Rifle Association. They have closed their eyes to the tragedies like mine. They ignored the statistics. Well, this statistic has decided to break his silence. Those members of Congress who oppose a simple seven-day waiting period should try being in my wheels just for one day. Do you know what it's like to go through every day. I'm not here to complain, but since you're here, I'll complain a little. (laughs) I'm not seeking your pity or sympathy. I'm thankful for the chance I've had at life and for the, the support I've had over the past eight years. But I wanted you to really understand what it's like being shot and what it's done to me and my family. There was a day when I walked the halls of this Senate and worked closely with many of you and your staffs. There was a wonderful day when I was fortunate enough to serve the President of the United States in a capacity I had dreamed of all my life. And for a time, I felt that people looked up at me. Today, I can tell you how hard it is to have people speaking down to me. Yes, I experience pain, pain sometimes so intense I cry. But nothing is harder than losing the independence and control we all have so value in our life. I need help getting out of bed 
taking a shower and help getting dressed. And damn it, I even need help to go to the bathroom. It's not easy to tell you this because I don't want your sympathy or your pity. But I tell you because you can do something not to help me, but to prevent this from happening to others. There are some who oppose a simple seven-day waiting period for handgun purchases because it would inconvenience gun dealers. Well, I guess I'm paying for their, inconven their convenience, and I'm one of the lucky ones. I survived being shot through the head. Other shooting victims are not as fortunate. I'm a Southern Illinois boy who grew up hunting and, and at home with guns. I don't question the rights of responsible gun owners. That's not the issue. The issue is whether the John Hinckley's of the world should be able to walk into a gun store and purchase a handgun instantly. And the issue is whether you and this great institution are able to face the facts squarely. Are you willing and ready to cast a vote for a common sense public safety bill endorsed by experts, law enforcement? Are you going to continue to pander to the special interest groups that whine a little about a little inconvenience and other such lame brain foolishness? I know many members of Congress don't want to stand up for the Brady Bill because the aggregation they the aggravation they get from the gun lobby. Well, their aggravation is minimal compared to the aggravation I face every day, every minute of my life. But I don't want sympathy. I want action on the Brady Bill. Let's get down to the politics of this issue. I've been involved in politics with Dorothy and campaign since I was old enough to stuff envelopes. So I understand that many of you are intimidated by the gun lobby, but you've got to look squarely at the facts. Law enforcement says the Brady Bill will work. The polls tell us that 91% of your constituents support it. What other issue enjoys such public support? Well, damn it, don't let the vocal minority dictate your position. Politically, it's a winner. Morally, it's the right thing to do. I know that you, Mr. Chairman, are supporting the Brady Bill because it's the right thing to do. I also know that if you didn't, you'd catch help from my mother, Dorothy, who's watching from Illinois. And for the rest of you, too, had better support the Brady Bill because there are millions of Americans like Sarah and Dorothy Brady who are out there watching. I'm pleased to be beside Sarah today. I finally get to see what she does up here. <laughs> I feel compelled to get involved because there are too many cowardly lions walking the halls of Congress. I fight every day to maintain the courage I need to survive. I pray that Congress can find the courage to quickly pass the Brady Bill. The Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, or the Brady Bill, didn't quickly pass. It took four more years until it was eventually signed into law under President Clinton. We credit the Brady Bill for the common sense provision that gun buyers must have background checks. 
And before the electronic background check system became instant in 1998, it also imposed a five-day waiting period before you could pick up your gun. Much in the tradition of Jim Brady, yet another government official who suffered serious brain trauma at the hands of a man who shouldn't have had a firearm, is speaking out today. Gabby Giffords. Violence is a big problem. Too many children are dying. Too many children. We must do something. It will be hard, but the time is now. You must act. That was Gabby five years ago. You'd think such high-profile government figures, personally impacted so seriously by gun violence, might have achieved even more results than they have so far. But now we're seeing something new. The nexus of the gun debate is currently in the hands of teenagers who haven't even had a chance to embark on their careers yet. Six minutes and about 20 seconds. In a little over six minutes, 17 of our friends were taken from us, 15 were injured, and everyone, absolutely everyone, in the Douglas community was forever altered. Everyone who is there understands. Everyone who has been touched by the cold grip of gun violence understands. For us, long, tearful, chaotic hours in the scorching afternoon sun were spent not knowing. No one understood the extent of what had happened. No one could believe that there were bodies in that building waiting to be identified for over a day. No one knew that the people who were missing had stopped breathing long before any of us had even known that a code red had been called. No one could comprehend the devastating aftermath or how far this would reach or where this would go. For those who still can't comprehend because they refuse to, I'll tell you where it went right into the ground, six feet deep. Six minutes and 20 seconds with an AR-15, and my friend Carmen would never complain to me about piano practice. Aaron Feist would never call Kira Miss Sunshine. Alex Schachter would never walk into school with his brother Ryan. Scott Beagle would never joke around with Cameron at camp. Helena Ramsey would never hang out after school with Max. Gina Montalto would never wave to her friend Liam at lunch. Joaquin Oliver would never play basketball with Sam or Dylan. Elena Petty would never. Carol Lugren would never. Chris Hickson would never. Luke Hoyer would never. Marquine Duque Aguiano would never. Peter Wang would never. Alyssa Alhadaf would never. Jamie Guttenberg would never. Meadow Pollock would never. That's, of course, Emma Gonzalez and a bit of the silence that shook the world at the March for Our Lives rally back in Washington, D.C., the only place where this whole national tragedy can end one day. Now it's time for our featured interview. Joining me on the rehab cast is Nicola Maffioletti. He's the head of the Human Performance Lab at Switzerland's Schultes Clinic. Dr. Maffioletti and a group of five other colleagues from a variety of institutions around the world are the authors of a special communication paper in this month's journal, Clinical Use of Neuromuscular Electrical Stimulation 
for neuromuscular rehabilitation. What are we overlooking? Nick lives half-time in Italy, half-time in France, and he works in Switzerland. It's quite a combination. Uh, he's joining us for the podcast from Paris. Nick, you and your colleagues have written a position paper here, a kind of narrative review with an argument laying out your recommendation as experts in the field of neuromuscular electrical stimulation. It's a vast and varied literature out there, and you're trying to distill from it what we should be doing as clinicians. But first, could you tell me a little bit more about Switzerland's Schultes Clinic, where you do your work? Yes, so the Schultes Clinic is an orthopedic clinic. It's a private clinic. It's a sort of foundation uh, whose goal is uh, the treatment of uh, all kinds of orthopedic conditions, uh, which range from, uh, uh, for example, injuries in young people, also in athletes, which are treated uh, with uh, surgery or with physical therapy, uh, until uh, the effect of osteoarthritis in an elderly population. And then one of the specialty of the clinic is uh, joint replacement. Uh, and that's it. So it's a small clinic. We have about 120 beds, but we have a very high volume of patients. So just to give an idea, every year we operate more than 700 uh, hips for total hip replacement, more than 750 uh, knees for knee replacements, and so on. You've been there for 12 years, the bulk of your career since earning your PhD, and now you're in charge of the Human Performance Lab there. What's the mission of that laboratory? So the mission is um, basically around, uh, I mean, the global name is Human Performance Lab, but the specific name would be neuromuscular performance. So the two missions are number one, to improve uh, the assessment of uh, neuromuscular function in our patients. And the second mission is to improve the function with uh, rehab. So these are the two missions. And the, the main joints or muscle we are working, working with are from the lower limbs, so knee and hip muscles. And in particular, we have a good methodologies to evaluate and to, to propose physical, improved physical therapy for, for the quadriceps. Great, and I do wanna learn more about some of your internal practices and protocols over the course of the interview. Let's delve into the paper. So you've gathered a number of your colleagues together in this very nicely written paper explaining your thought processes about how neuromuscular electrical stimulation ought to be used and perhaps used more. What are you hoping to achieve with this paper? Contrary to previous articles from my group, where we were mainly oriented on research applications and research improvements of uh, neuromuscular electrical steam, in this case we want to be more clinical and that's uh, really the goal of this, uh, of this communication. Uh, and the main thing was to, to discuss three important points that have been overlooked in the general use of neuromuscular steam for rehab, and in particular in, ortho in the orthopedic field, which is the field I'm working on. And the mission was really to provide uh, useful information that can be used on a daily routine of, uh, of clinicians. Now let's make sure that we define our terms for our audience. This is neuromuscular electrical stimulation as distinguished from functional electrical stimulation and TENS therapy. Uh, what's different about neuromuscular electrical stimulation versus those other two? Yeah, so the main difference is that uh, neuromuscular electrical steam is used at uh, higher intensities in the way that muscles are really activated and there is a significant contractions of the muscle, so there is, there is tension 
in the muscles when they are stimulated with neuromuscular electrical steam. And the goal is to provide like a sort of long-term treatment. So it's a sort of protocol that should last four to six weeks in order to be effective. However, TENS, which is usually with uh, low current intensities, so very small currents, and usually at different frequencies, is used for... Uh, I mean, this does not generate visible contractions, so that's a sort of sensory modality. And the goal of TENS is usually to treat pain, both acutely and chronically. So one session can be enough to treat pain, but also multiple sessions can be used. So these are the main differences between those two modalities. And I gather you think neuromuscular stem is a bit underused relative to that other two. Why do you think that is? Yes, it is clearly underused. And it is underused because uh, most of the clinicians have uh, the fear that this modality can create uh, some problems in the muscles because there is tension in the muscles and the tension should be controlled. So if the tension is not controlled, as it is quite often the case with neuromuscular ethical steam, there could be problems, problems such as overuse of muscles. And that's the, the main limitation of neuromuscular ethical steam, contrary to tense, where basically, I mean, that doesn't seem risky because there is no contraction. Uh, yeah, for for example, yeah, I saw a friend recently uh, who had just undergone an ACL repair. Uh, she was at at a party trying to keep uh, weight off of it, uh, sitting down uh, most of the time, and uh, she told me it was going to be several weeks uh, before her orthopedist wanted her to start rehab. Uh, that that would probably be a really good time for uh, to be going ahead and, and doing a, a neuromuscular stem protocol, don't you think? Yes, exactly. Um, so neuromuscular electrical steam is part of the rehab protocols we use in the clinic, but also, I mean, worldwide neuromuscular electrical steam is used. And in particular, such as for your friend, for the treatment of, um, uh, for the reconstruction of the anterior cruciate ligament, uh, we start to use neuromuscular electrical steam usually two, three weeks after surgery. Uh -huh. But our trend would be to start if possible, just one week after surgery. I mean, we do not necessarily need to use very strong contractions. So on one side, we would like to accelerate the use of neuromuscular electrical steam, and on the other side, we would like to optimize its use later on. Now, uh, certainly a lot of attention is being paid uh, lately in the rehabilitation literature to non-invasive brain stimulation uh, of all kinds, largely TDCS and TMS. But you write about how neuromuscular stem is kind of a forgotten brain stimulation uh, itself, and, and there's good research that effect. It looks like you, you've done some yourself. Would you tell me about that? Uh, yeah. So actually, in a perfect rehab scenario, there would be space also for brain steam or for many other modalities that could stimulate the central nervous system at different levels. But by using neuromuscular electrical steam, we have access to the central nervous system as well. It has been demonstrated that, for example, whenever we apply current on the muscles, there is cortical activity. There is a, an increased interhemispheric communication at the brain level. There is a spinal activity, so uh, induced by the current. So we have access to the central nervous system. And it is important to uh, stimulate the central nervous system as quickly as possible after a, a lesion or after a surgery, for example, after 
anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction because the first impairment we have as soon as we have a lesion, as soon as we have an injury or surgery, is a sort of neural impairment in the way that we are unable to fully control and activate our muscles. So, and this is a neural impairment which has to be targeted and it can be treated quickly with neuromuscular steam. But I agree with you that in the perfect world, in the perfect rehab scenario, we should also use other forms. Brain steam, the problem is that we don't have very high evidence today to show the effects of brain steam uh, with TDCS or transcranial max steam or whatever for the treatment of orthopedic conditions. Mm -hmm. But there is already good evidence on other populations, like for example, following in people with depression or psychological problems. Now, you published uh, last summer in Scientific Reports on uh, specific brain activation patterns associated with two different uh, neuromuscular e-stem protocols. What, what did you learn in that study? Okay, that study is very different from this uh, review we recently published in the way that it's a very fundamental work with a functional MRI where the goal was to compare two different modalities of neuromuscular steam and see what happens at the brain level when we compare electrical steam with voluntary contractions. Mm -hmm. And actually, that study uh, told us that the, the activity at the brain level is quite similar between a voluntary contraction uh, and contractions induced by, by neuromuscular electrical steam. Mm -hmm. Also, when, when the parameters are changed, for example, uh, one of the modalities we are we are focusing focus on and at the moment is called wide pulse neuromuscular electrical steam is nothing but electrical steam with a very large pulses lasting more than the conventional one with the idea that that modality can maximize the neural response and actually we didn't see that difference at the at the brain level i see interesting now you talk about evoked force uh, with neuromuscular stem as being a, an important concept, and since it is so important, it's probably important that, that we measure it right or know what we're looking for. Uh, how is the clinician best able to do that? Yeah, very good point. So actually, I have to say, and I wasn't probably not very clear in the, in the review at that time, uh, about the importance of measuring muscle tension. So actually, there have been, at the same time, there have been an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine speaking about uh, dosing of electrotherapy. I mean, this was about TDCS and other modalities, but the title of the, of the letter was um, The Devil is in the Dosing. Uh, because as soon as we stimulate a nerve or a muscle, uh, we are unable to provide a good indicator of dosage. So the current itself, so the input, the milliampers that we inject in a nerve or in a muscle, is not the best indicator of dosage. And we have, for neuromuscular electrical steam, one way to quantify, to estimate the dosage, which is quantifying muscle tension, which is quantifying how much uh, tension or force is generated by a muscle during the stimulation. This is very easy in the lab, and to answer your question, this can be also very easy for the clinician, because today we have portable solutions, so we have what we call the dynamometers, so these are like uh, uh, portable tools which are very cheap to measure strength, 
This is commonly done by physiotherapists, for example. And those uh, dynamometers uh, can be used to measure the level of tension in a muscle or the evoked strength. And this is the simplest solution, clinically speaking. There could be also another solution, which is without any tool, which is like a manual, a manual testing of muscle, which is something commonly used in, a, in neurology. Uh, so basically with scales ranging from 0 to 5, where 0 means no tension and 5 means maximal tension, and that can, can be subjectively uh, scored by a clinician. Good, yeah, that, that does sound very practical. And people really get hung up on uh, on tweaking different uh, parameters uh, with with eSTEM devices and really set on on those as some type of magic uh, formula. Uh, and you really point out how the it's patient intrinsic factors that are really the most important as to whether neuromuscular stem is going to be effective in, in a given case. Would you explain that? Yes. So it's mainly um, something against uh, me and my colleagues doing research because. Uh, we love to modify just one parameter uh, or just using another device or using a new device. And as you know, I mean, uh, commercially speaking, uh, there is a lot of interest on neuromuscular steam. And the story is, okay, let's change one parameter. Let's change the electrode. Let's change whatever controllable factor and see how effective it is. And following 40 years of research in this direction, we are still unable to say what is the best current, what is the best electrode, what is the best factor that can be controlled that makes the difference. Because the main difference is, is induced by individuals, so individuals are all different, the skin is different, uh, the muscles are different, the innervation is different, and whenever we apply an electrode we can control where the nerve is with respect to the muscle, because actually we excite the nerve, and this will determine the effectiveness. So in other words, one more time, uh, the most important component is the output, it's not the input, and the output is the tension we generate. So no matter what kind of factor parameter we use, the tension that is evoked in a muscle is crucial to, to the effectiveness. And the second important component is the discomfort, because usually, I mean, generating tension with current is not easily tolerated by all patients. And having the best current would be generating the highest tension with the lowest discomfort. I would say no matter what the type of external be, externally controllable parameter. Yeah, excellent. Now, um, kind of getting to your, your bottom line, uh, practical recommendations for, uh, for clinicians. You talk about, um, you have about 10 recommendations at, at the bottom of the paper. I wonder if you could highlight some of those for us as some of the ones that you think are kind of uh, uh, most important. You, talk, you do kind of give some general pulse frequency ranges and, uh, and so forth and, uh, uh, and recommendations of current and that type of thing in general terms, uh, size of electrodes and so forth. Uh, can you kind of summarize some of these, uh, these practical tips for us? Yep. So, as you can see from the recommendations, um, we don't want to be too precise when we speak about parameters or electrodes. That's why we propose ranges, for example, for the frequencies, ranges for the duration of the pulse, uh, general size for the electrodes, 
but we don't want to be too precise into that because that's very risky one more time for people who always I mean the typical question I have whenever I do a conference is is it better to use 50 or 60 Hertz I mean that doesn't make a big difference I'm sorry the difference again is how much tension you generate and then we try at the same time with those recommendations to be very practical uh, in the way that for example we provide uh, recommendations for minimizing the discomfort for example when we recommend people to contract their muscles when they receive the current this is done to reduce the discomfort but also to reduce the anxiety and in a sort to change the focus of the patients on the stimulation uh, or for example we also give the stimulator itself to the patient which is a good way to reduce the anxiety they have against the stimulation or another important thing is that because this form of neuromuscular steam is usually applied in static condition where muscle length doesn't change we often recommend to change the angle or to change the position of the body just to modify the position of the muscle during the stimulation in the way that we can activate different part of the muscle and trying to maximize a little bit the activation. Now you mentioned earlier there are three main concepts you wanted to get out in the paper. I do want to make sure that we cover each, have we? Yeah. So number one, uh, this is what we call a physiological perspective, is that we really want to uh, to stress the fact that we are using a modality which has been for more than 30 years uh, considered as a peripheral modality. So stimulating a muscle in individuals who have intact nerves uh, like orthopedic patients or patients with uh, uh, patients who are immobilized for a bunch of reasons. Uh, actually the, the belief was okay we stimulate muscles so we obtain a peripheral response and that's completely false. I mean, now, now, today, we know that the central nervous system, I mean, it's a little bit provocative, but we tend to say it is bombarded by the current whenever the current is applied at the muscle level. And the first reason is that because we excite the nerve, we do not excite the muscles, the muscle fibers, because the nerve is five to ten times more excitable than the muscle. So whenever we apply current over the skin, we excite the nerve and the axons, not the muscle itself. So this was the first, really the first perspective, the physiological one, stressing the importance of neural contribution, neural activation induced by neuromuscular electrical steam. And that's also why to pref we prefer to say neuromuscular electrical steam, contrary to, for example, electrical muscle stimulation or electromyostimulation, which is quite common, we prefer to use this term neuromuscular because the nervous system is really stressed during the application of uh, NMES. The second point is, is what we call methodological perspective. It's basically uh, the discussion about input versus output. So input, these are all the parameters that can be controlled and for which many studies and being conducted but with a uh, little uh, clinical relevance while the main determinant is really the tension that we obtain at the muscle level and this was the methodological perspective number two and the third perspective is more practical 
So it's really uh, whenever we have a patient and we don't have a lab and we need to apply current and we want to make it in the best possible way with uh, good scientific evidence. Um, in this part, we stressed two important factors. Number one, uh, reducing tolerance or improving tolerance, sorry, because many patients, again, they are not very easy to stimulate, especially the first and the second time and the third time. The first week of a treatment is the most important, is where we can recognize if people can be good responders or if the level of anxiety is too high, they will never be good responders for NMES. In that way, those people should do something else. And the second important thing was really uh, using a, an algorithm that we recently published with another group of, uh, of researchers. Uh, an algorithm seems a, a very difficult word, but it's, it's nothing. It's just telling the clinician what are the different steps whenever we have a patient that comes to the clinic for ACL reconstruction, like your friend. Starting from the first phase, which is familiarizing the patient in the best possible way, so keeping the patient and making him or her as a responder, until the treatment phase, and where the treatment phase should be optimized. So we introduced in that phase also a sort of um, uh, control that we were doing the proper thing. We were not losing, and the patient was not losing, losing his or her time. And then we conclude with uh, basically putting together those three perspectives. Uh, the, the core of our article is really muscle tension. That's everything is around muscle tension. That's the first figure in the article. Mm -hmm. And then we, we conclude with practical recommendation, which because basically, I mean, many people, they, they don't want to read the paper. They just go to the essential things, figures and conclusions. And that's why the recommendations are usually at the end. Yeah, so this this is, as you emphasize, your goal was to produce something practical, and it really does seem that way. And uh, uh, and you kind of you kind of apologize to a certain extent for uh, for what you know the the bulk of the literature is so technical that you and your colleagues are producing, which is all very important, basic science research. But you can get lost in those weeds of you know the various Hertz changes and, and so forth. And, and it's important to come back to what are the practical principles that we can use. Uh, to, to help people in, in the here and now, and I think you've done a really good job of, of summarizing that. I did want to wrap up a little bit with uh, kind of uh, if, there's, if there's something different that you guys are doing at the Schultes Clinic with regards to uh, your lower extremity orthopedic rehab cases and kind of the protocols uh, that, that you use, um, uh, could you kind of uh, give us a window into that? Yeah, very good point. Um, so actually, we are doing something different um, because in the last few years, again, because we prefer to be evidence-based and we would like to use um, uh, modalities that are clinically acceptable, we decided to change a little bit the type of uh, neuromuscular stimulation uh, we used. Uh, I will try to explain that in a better way. So for about 25 years, neuromuscular steam has been... Uh, like uh, produced by surface electrodes, which are positioned on specific muscle bellies. For example, after ACL reconstruction, we stimulate the quadriceps and we usually target three or four superficial muscles with small electrodes. And we deliver fixed current to those electrodes with uh, two or three channels. And the current is 
fixed and always restricted between pairs of electrodes. And since 20 years we complain that this modality is, uh, of activation is uh, artificial, uh, is discomfortable and is not able to fully activate a muscle like the quadriceps which is a big muscle. And then about 10 years ago I realized when I was in a conference in Ireland that some people already tried to change this paradigm of stimulation in the way that they they covered completely a muscle with a bunch of electrodes and they produced a pattern of stimulation which were completely random, which were traveling in one direction, in another direction, uh, in different position, between different pairs of electrodes in a sort of, uh, we call it distributed stimulation. So they distributed the current in uh, two more areas of the quadriceps. And finally, five years ago, there have been a, a commercially, commercially available solution, which was on the market. And we decided to test this solution here in the clinic. So actually, it's very, it's very good because the solution is also integrated into a brace. So it's not anymore small electrodes that the patient itself should position on the muscle. But it's a brace. So basically like an orthosis. So you, you put on a brace which contains electrodes and then in, with two operations you are, and two buttons you are ready to stimulate your muscles. And we tested this modality. So we tested this modality first with uh, able-bodied healthy people. So basically ourselves, the mates in the lab, 10 people. And the results were very clear. Uh, less discomfort, more tension, and uh, a very easy solution for doing work at home. And then we made a study with um, total knee arthroplasty patients from the clinic, and we obtained the same results. And then we did a study with obese people, uh, very massively obese people, so mean BMI was 40, uh, same results. So in a series of studies, we demonstrated the, basically the superiority of this distributed stimulation and this was also a way for us in the clinic to change the, 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 the typical rehab protocol in the way that we excluded the old NMES protocol that we have been using and the old devices we have been using for 20 years. And today we use this uh, brace and this distributed solution, which, is also, which was a big change because you have to imagine that in a clinic where there are over 60 physical therapists oh, wow. and mm -hmm. many surgeons who, who don't want to change what they do because, I mean, what we do is okay. Um, it's a difficult thing to change. And also the insurance decided to change. And now this new device is, uh, is fully working in the clinic. And we are pretty happy with, with, with those results. But, I mean, I don't want to say that NMES is the only important thing in rehab. I just want to put things uh, in the order. Yeah. Uh, NMES is an important component, but in the acutely after surgery or injury. And then, I mean, physical therapy and rehab is uh, many other things that should be adequately combined. Excellent. And please do name the devices that you're using now so the listeners can look those up if they like. Yes, before naming the device, I prefer to say that I don't have any conflict of interest. The name of the device is Kneehab. Knee, like a knee, hab, H-A-B. It, it was produced by an Irish company, uh, and now I think it has been acquired by an American group. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, but the name of the device is uh, Nehab. Excellent. Okay. I'll definitely check that out. Well, I, I really appreciate the, the conversation today, Dr. Maffioletti. I, I think this is uh, an excellent overview of your, of your paper, which should be uh, useful to, to many clinicians who are hopefully listening to the podcast. Thank you. I thank you, and I hope uh, it was uh, an interesting discussion. It will be an interesting paper for the community. Thanks. Yes, I, th- I think it will. And that's it for this April 2018 edition of the RehabCast. Please share this episode with your colleagues. And you know, most podcast players have a share link where you can post this episode easily on social media. The RehabCast is possible thanks to our fantastic engineer, Jenny Ament. Assuming you have diverse interests that could extend even beyond the world of rehabilitation, check out Jenny's latest project called Edge of Fame. It's a collaboration between WBUR Radio Boston and the Washington Post. It's a super entertaining behind the scenes look into the world of entertainers. This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Dallas September 30th through October 2nd, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.